Our scripture reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 18, verses 24 to 28. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. May God bless the hearing of his word. Amen. Let's go to our great God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning mindful that we derive our names from you, that it is in the work of your son, Jesus Christ, that we claim the name Christian and that you have identified us as your sons and daughters. And Father, as your children, we cry out today that you would show yourself in the glorious riches of the gospel, that we would be strengthened and supported by an understanding of this gospel, and that we would take this gospel to other people, sharing the good news of Jesus with anyone who would listen. And Father, we pray that you would enable us to do this work, not in our own strength and our own might, but by the power of your Spirit. And we ask that we would be sensitive to your Spirit, listening to the voice of God as he directs us, as you direct us, to share Christ and to learn Christ. And God, we pray as we lean into the gospel of Jesus by the power of the Spirit, that we together with God's people would make Jesus known and that you would make the love of Christ known to more and more people. And Father, we pray that our knowledge of the gospel would not simply be an intellectual fascination or an accumulation of data, but we pray instead that our knowledge of the gospel would lead to godly lives, that we live in a way that honors you as living sacrifices devoted to your cause. And Father, we pray as well that our knowledge of the gospel would lead us to invite others to receive the gospel, that we would call out sin, not in self-righteousness, but call out sin, pointing people to the Savior, Jesus. And Father, we pray that in all these ways, you would be glorified through our words and through our lives as you have seen fit to make yourself known to people called Christians. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this morning, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 18, and if you were confused there, the ESV was on the screen, and Tommy was reading from the NIV, which is what I am preaching from this morning. So I like to call it the inspired version, which is purely a joke. It's not inspired, but it is a faithful translation of God's Word, and it's a translation that I've grown up with, that I've memorized from, and that I love. I also appreciate the ESV as well, so I'm not knocking on the ESV, but I am saying there are more than one faithful translation out there. 
Well, this morning, as we look to Acts chapter 18, what I want us to see in this passage that Tommy has read is that Christians are people who eagerly learn with the church. Christians are people who eagerly learn with the church. Now, you may say, wait a second, Nathan, last week you said Christians are people who boldly identify with Jesus. You're changing your definition of Christian. And I would say, no, I'm expanding my definition of Christian. And last week we laid out those elements of the Christian life that clearly mark us as followers of Jesus. And I said that baptism was a sign that identifies us with Jesus. As we are lowered in the waters and raised again, we identify our union with Christ's death and resurrection. I also said that Jesus then identifies these baptized believers with the local church, and that Christians are those who are joined together in the local assembly of believers. And then I also pointed out to you that the church identifies who the believers are through communion. That is, we offer the elements of the wine and the bread to those who profess faith in Jesus. We don't simply offer it as a rite or a ritual or a tradition, but instead we use the Lord's table as a symbol of Christ's death and to show us the importance of the atonement and that all of us are saved because of the sacrificial work of Jesus. Communion recenters our identity and draws our focus on Christ. Well, this morning, you could say in a continuation, though not a continuation of passages, I want us to show you that maturing Christians understand those aspects of our identity, but maturing Christians are also the kind of people that are eagerly learning Christ through his word. Maturing Christians are those who are eagerly learning Christ through his word. Over the years, I've had the privilege to disciple many different people, and I have stories that I could share of those people, and some of them stand out in terms of different conversations that we have had. About 20 years ago, I was discipling a young man who was headed to the army. He had voluntarily gone down and signed with a recruiter, and he was hoping to become eventually a warrant officer to fly helicopters. In the meantime, he was preparing himself to go away to, for, to basic training, and he was anxious about all that that would entail. And we started meeting every week. And he said, I need you to get me ready for this, not from the military standpoint, but for my faith, because I'm concerned that going into the army is possibly gonna be a challenge to my faith, and I wanna grow in my understanding of Christ and the gospel. Well, this young man had been raised in a Christian home, and he had been nurtured by the church. But he readily admitted to me that one of the reasons he was anxious is because so much of what he had learned was simply knowledge that had not led to understanding and had not worked its way out in wisdom. And one of the first discussions we had when we started meeting regularly was our understanding of Scripture and that God is sovereign over all things. And he said, wait a second. You mean God is sovereign? He said, that concerns me because I've heard people talk about the doctrine of election and they've used that in a way that is not helpful and that leads people not to evangelize and he had many comments and commentary about his understanding of the doctrine of election. Well, I simply challenged him that day. I didn't respond to all of his comments. I said, you know what, would you do me a favor? Before we meet next week, I'd like you to read the book of Ephesians 
at least five times. And as you read Ephesians, I want you to be thinking about the questions and the comments that you've made today, and then we're going to talk about them next week. Well, when we got together the following week, we got some food and we were enjoying it, and I remember the scene. And as we sat down, I said, so how did your reading in Ephesians go this past week? And this is why this account stands out in my mind. This brother had tears in his eyes. And he said, Nathan, it's as if I read Ephesians for the first time in my life. He said, the doctrine of election was all over Ephesians. He said, I couldn't escape it. In fact, he said, you made me read it five times, and each time I read it, it became more and more clear to me, so much so that I dropped to my knees, and I said, God, forgive me for being so arrogant. Forgive me for judging your word and not letting your word judge me. And he made me have tears, because I thought that is the power of the Scripture, that he had an incomplete knowledge, but he humbled himself to look back into the word, which is the only authority for Christians, and he allowed the word of God to not only inform his mind, but to change his heart and to soften him in his understanding of that incredible doctrine. Well, that's just one story of many, but in the scripture we have a story of Apollos, who is also a brother who came to Ephesus and he came with an incomplete understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says in our passage, not that Apollos was a heretic who was a false teacher, but it says he had an inadequate understanding of Jesus and his gospel. What I want us to focus on this morning in this passage is how Apollos, Aquila, and Priscilla all demonstrated a desire to learn from the word of God and to align their lives with what the Bible teaches and what they were learning there. As we will see in this passage, God gives the church godly Bible teachers. God gives the church godly Bible teachers. The apostle Paul in the book of Acts is traveling around sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to whomever would listen, both Jew and Gentile. Most often, he would go into a synagogue and begin teaching there, and God in his grace would grant repentance and faith in Jesus Christ to those who were listening, but then there was also a group that would rise up against him and drive him out of town time and time again. In the midst of his sharing the gospel and the commotion that was created, there were Gentiles who would hear this message, and they too would believe and become God-fearing Christians all because God equipped the Apostle Paul in his background and experience with the knowledge of Scripture and an understanding of Christ that he was able to put together the compelling message of the gospel and offer it to sinners unto salvation. Well, as the Apostle was doing that, he was traveling from town to town, and in verse number 23 of Acts 18, we see the Apostle Paul setting out on his third missionary journey where he would travel around to places new and places familiar, starting churches and strengthening churches with this message of Jesus Christ. Well, to set the context, before Paul left on this third journey, he had been in Corinth with his friends Aquila and Priscilla for about a year and a half. And these brothers and sister had been laboring together, making tents and sharing Jesus making tents and sharing Jesus. It says in the earlier part of chapter 18 
that Aquila and Priscilla were tent makers like Paul. And this is how they provided for their needs while they spent their time in the synagogue teaching and instructing others from the scriptures. Well, these Bible teachers, starting with Paul, were equipped according to the scriptures, and Aquila and Priscilla were some of Paul's key disciples. So by the time it comes for Paul to leave Corinth, he leaves with his friends Aquila and Priscilla because they had become such important partners in ministry. Perhaps they felt by the leading of God that the church in Corinth had been established and God was directing them to take the message to other towns and places. And indeed, they traveled together on their way to Ephesus, stopping and sharing Jesus as they went. But then when they came to Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla would stay there for a while while Paul would journey onward. And that's where the narrative picks up in verse number 24 where Tommy began reading. And it says, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. The significance of this is that Apollos was also someone who was believing in God and someone who was teaching others about God. In fact, it says that he was an educated believer. He was someone who was a learned man or someone who was eloquent in his speech and had a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. Apollos was in fact a well-educated man and he remained a teachable man. As a native of Alexandria, he came to Ephesus as an itinerant teacher. He, like Paul, went straight to the synagogue to tell people about this coming one, this Messiah that would be coming to rescue Israel. And yet, apparently, Apollos may not have connected all of the dots that Paul had, knowing that this coming one had already come that he had lived and died the perfect life, that he had resurrected from the dead and was now ruling and reigning at the right hand of God, and that in his absence, the Spirit of God had come to indwell Jesus' followers and to guide them according to the gospel. Well, as Apollos was an educated man, we don't know all of his credentials, but we can say, based on where he came from in Alexandria, he may have had access to an incredible education. Alexandria was the second largest city in the Roman Empire with over 600,000 people living there. And it was well known around Rome for its university and for its vast library of nearly 700,000 volumes. That's a lot of books and a lot of scrolls and parchments that would have been collected there. Unfortunately, that library is not extant today, meaning it's not around any longer but it was a place people traveled to in order to learn and to study with Greek philosophers. There were also Jewish philosophers and others. It was a cosmopolitan city with Egyptians, Romans, Greeks, and Jews. In fact, Jews were estimated to be at least a quarter of the population, and they were influential in the city, not merely marginalized as in other Roman colonies and cities. But this man, Apollos, came with an education, and he also came with a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament, a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament. Now, again, we don't know what this all entails, but we can say he was probably synagogue trained, and he was someone who was disciplined in his pursuit of the scripture, not simply someone who showed up at the last minute 
on Sabbath and then rolled out a moment before the benediction. But instead, this man was devoted and he was taught. What's interesting in the background and the history of this is that Alexandria, where Apollos is from, is believed to be where the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, originated from. So I don't know if Apollos had access to the Septuagint, but it stands to reason he may have, based on the passion with which he preached and the urgency with which he invited people to respond to Christ. Whatever the case, Apollos was someone who was educated and he was also passionate. Because he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, verse number 25 says, he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. Apollos' instruction certainly included instruction in the ways of God. He was not simply given information, but he was given knowledge that led to understanding, and that understanding led to wisdom, which is the application of knowledge. And the Apollos, as he was instructed in the way of the Lord, took what he had learned and shared it with other people. It says here he spoke with great fervor. That is, in his spirit, there was passion for what he had been taught. This passion led him to teach others who would willingly listen. And what was the content of his teaching? He was teaching about Jesus accurately, though incompletely. Accurately, though incompletely. Completely. As the apostle, or excuse me, as Apollos was following the apostle Paul, he was coming into Ephesus and teaching, and there sitting in the synagogue were Aquila and Priscilla, some of Paul's closest disciples. And as they listened to Apollos, they were probably like others, impressed with his knowledge, and they were captivated by his enthusiasm, but then they were also convicted by what he didn't know and they thought that they should teach him. So what did he know? It says in verse number 25 that he only knew the baptism of John. Apollos had an accurate knowledge of Jesus, meaning he knew that Jesus lived and that Jesus died. He had probably heard of resurrection, but by only knowing the baptism of John, this means he had not fully understood the baptism of Jesus. John had come before Jesus, And he was there to prepare Israel for the Messiah. He was declaring that there was a coming one, one who would offer them the forgiveness of their sins. And John offered baptism as a part of his message. This was not a baptism identifying one as a follower of Jesus, but a baptism anticipating that the Messiah was coming. And that those individuals who received this baptism were trusting that this coming Messiah would forgive their sins and they received John's baptism as an act of repentance. The followers of John received this baptism in anticipation of what they had not yet known or experienced. You see, Apollos knew the Old Testament prophecies well, and he understood John's preaching about the coming one. However, he must not have known all the ways that Jesus had fulfilled the Old Testament and completed John's teaching. In fact, some of the disciples of John, such as Apollos, were not aware of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that had come after Jesus. Although Apollos had learned the way of the Lord in Alexandria, and despite his intellect, his commitment, his education, 
his preaching, his passion, and even his effectiveness. Apollos had an incomplete understanding of the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Apollos was not inaccurate, he was not insincere, he was simply incomplete in what he was teaching. What I want you to take away from this section is that God doesn't expect us to know everything at all times. You see, sometimes we stumble in our evangelism because we say, well, what if they ask a question that I don't know the answer to? How will I respond if they push back at this point? And some of us are even more specific than that and will say, I've been asked, well, how can you know the Bible is the word of God? How can we know God exists in such a pluralistic culture? And why can the gospel be made exclusive? And we shudder and we tremble at some of those questions because we've been embarrassed not knowing the answer when we were asked. God doesn't call us to know all the answers with encyclopedia-like knowledge. He instead wants us to teach what we do know about Christ and the gospel. And we must be committed to being lifelong learners about Jesus. Apollos, though his knowledge was incomplete, was committed to taking what he did know to anyone who would listen. And apparently he was quite persuasive and he was continuing to point people to Messiah and point people even in the direction that led to Jesus, but he didn't have all the facts and all the information. As we go about our witness, it is a team sport. So what I mean by that is you're not witnessing on your own, but you're witnessing with a community of believers. The reason you don't have to know everything is because you have other believers that can support you in your witness and help strengthen and solidify what you are sharing. In fact, you can come back to church and say, I was in a conversation this week and I got stumped. Here's what they said. What would you have said? What scripture would you point them to? How would you answer? And then you can go back to that same person and reflect again some of the things you have learned, showing in your conversation that you're not a know-it-all, that you're teachable, but also showing that you are desperate to teach them what you know about Jesus. So this raises a question. In what ways are you teaching the Bible? In what ways are you teaching the Bible, and how can God use you to teach someone else the Bible? Now you might say, well, Nathan, I've always thought that Bible teachers are guys like you who stand up in a pulpit and have eloquent things to say, or people who go off to a seminary and receive a master's or higher level education. And yet I think we see in this passage, and we will in just a moment, that Bible teachers are believers who know the gospel and share the gospel. A Bible teacher, though there can be those who are more educated and more eloquent, can be someone as ordinary as you. And you have the privilege to tell others the good news of Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. And we must do that. There are opportunities in our church for you to teach the Bible multiple ways. You don't simply have to be a teacher of one of our discipleship classes. And don't worry, we're not gonna just randomly come to you and say, you know what, Ezekiel, next quarter, that's you. And some of you say, whew, thank you. But we might come to you and say, we have a need in our children's Sunday school or in our youth Sunday school. We have a need for team kid or for youth group. And we want you to come alongside others and share what you know and point them to Jesus. 
Some of the most precious memories I have in church are of faithful adults who showed up for children's programs on Wednesday nights and taught me Jesus. But you know what? I don't remember any of the lessons. Like I've thought about this week. I can't remember a single message that was taught in children's ministry or youth group when I was growing up. But you know what I do remember? I remember the lives of the people who showed up. I remember them coming in at the last minute because they were getting off work and they were trying to get to church to help with the children's program or the youth group. I remember them coming in and just modeling what it was to be an ordinary Christian who depended on Christ and his word. And I can name names of people through every phase of my life who were simply committed to showing me Jesus. Apollos was committed to showing others what he knew about God, even if he didn't know everything, and you are also called to show others what you know about God because you don't know everything either. Well, God gives the church godly Bible teachers, and I want you to see secondly in this passage that humble Bible teachers continue to learn from the church. Humble Bible teachers continue to learn from the church. Apollos rolls into Ephesus, goes straight to the synagogue, and begins teaching persuasively. And as he does this, Aquila and Priscilla are already strategically placed in the assembly in order to help their brother Apollos, but they didn't know it yet. So as Apollos is teaching and Priscilla and Aquila are listening, they hear this brother teach and they realize there's a disconnect in what he is saying. Not that he's wrong, it's just that he's not complete. So they decide to minister alongside Apollos by inviting him into their home. Look again in our passage, it says in verse number 26, when Priscilla and Aquila heard Apollos, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Aquila and Priscilla didn't stand up in the synagogue and say, no, wait, 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 just a second. This guy does not have all the facts. Let's correct him right here and right now and then hear what else he has to say. No, this was not a public confrontation, but it was a gentle invitation to come into their home. Through hospitality, Apollos, or excuse me, Aquila and Priscilla were able to lovingly come alongside Apollos and show him the rest of the gospel, as it were. They were able to humbly show him the mercy and grace before they defended Christ's righteousness and truth. We live in an era where it's easy to put righteousness and truth first and even be combative about it, but Aquila and Priscilla were not combative. Instead, they were kind and they were gentle and they were even persuasive in their own way as they showed Paul mercy and grace. You see, they had already heard the message of the gospel when Paul came to Corinth. It says in verse eight of chapter 18, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and they were baptized. And then in verse number 11 it says, and Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Apollos was now in the presence of Aquila and Priscilla who had spent a year and a half with Paul learning the doctrines of grace and they were able to share these doctrines with their brother Apollos. Paul had personally discipled Aquila and Priscilla and now Aquila and Priscilla were personally discipling the apostle Paul. You could say it like this, 
Paul discipled Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla discipled Apollos. Apollos would disciple many more believers. And then the disciples of Apollos would disciple more and more and more. I would direct you to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where Paul says, he planted the seed of the gospel. Apollos watered the seed and God gave the growth. The point in all of that is to say that Aquila and Priscilla were not putting themselves up as high and mighty. They were not even trying to interrupt the normal teaching and ministry of the synagogue, but they pulled Apollos aside and they invested in him. They taught him, they loved him, they cared for him, they formed a relationship with him. You could say they discipled him. Alan Hadidian summarizes discipleship very well and it's consistent with this passage. Here's how Hadidian defines it. He says, discipling is the process in which a Christian with a life worth emulating commits himself for an extended period of time to a few individuals who have been won to Christ. The purpose of being an aid and guide to their growth and maturity and to equip them to reproduce themselves in a third spiritual generation. Now I realize that's a long definition, but what Hadidian is saying there is that discipleship is a process, it takes time, and it transfers one life to another. It's not glitzy, it's not glamorous, and there can be a lot of mundane ordinariness in the process. I started by telling you about my friend who was going off to the army and wanted to have a few weeks of intense discipleship before we went. And I invested what I could, but I were, I'm here to tell you, though that second meeting was memorable to the point that I shared it with you this morning, when he cried and I cried and everything like that, the other meetings that we had, I scarcely remember. Because we were simply being faithful Christians, talking about Christ and learning Christ, continuing to study the other truths in Ephesians as we applied them to our lives. I'm happy to report that that brother continues to persevere in Christ and now has a wife and a family and that it's encouraging to see how God has developed that over the years. But all of that through the ordinary work of people, Christians, coming alongside one another. You should note in this passage that the Apollos, the great teacher, the eloquent one who was skilled in communication, humbled himself he was an educated, eloquent man, and he humbled himself to learn from working-class tent makers. Working-class tent makers. Apollos persuaded crowds. Aquila and Priscilla persuaded the teacher. Think about that for a moment. Aquila and Priscilla persuaded the teacher, and they may not have said, well, I'm not anything like the Apostle Paul. We are not able to get up and hold court in the synagogue. We are nowhere near the skill level of Apollos who can argue with Jews and convince them. And yet they had the knowledge of scripture and the understanding of its meaning that they were able to apply biblical wisdom to their lives and to the life of Apollos. Aquila and Priscilla helped Apollos gain a better understanding of Jesus Christ. It says they explained to him the way of God more adequately I believe the, the ESV says accurately, but the point is they explained it more completely. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, a congregation where he and Apollos both would minister, he says, 
Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There the apostle is repeating the heart and soul of the gospel, but notice the language surrounding it when he said, I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, of this gospel. I want you to continue in this gospel that you have heard, this message that is of first importance. Aquila and Priscilla were teaching Apollos the significance of Christ. And I think what Paul said in Corinthians is spot on, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Aquila and Priscilla simply verified that the message of the gospel was true, that they had seen evidence of it in their own lives and in the lives of others who were responding to this glorious message. Apollos would become their chief disciple, that through their ministry and their home, they were able to impact this man who would go on to impact many others, leading them to Christ. As we strive to apply this passage, I want to challenge and encourage all of us to come alongside one another with the scriptures. It's not enough just to study the Bible in isolation by yourself, but we need a learning community, a community where we learn alongside one another in the context of the church. I put in your worship guide a couple quotes by Don Whitney. If you want to look there, you can see what I'm about to say to you. But in the worship guide on the inside of the very front page, Whitney answers the question for us, why should we learn in the church? Why should we learn in the church? And let me quote him for you. He says, learning in the church allows for dialogue. Modeling, hands-on practice, and other means of learning which much accompany and complement the academic side of discipleship. Learning in the church is always richer and better balanced than learning alone or through media because learning is more than simply acquiring data. Again, that is a full and pregnant statement that could be unpacked in several ways. But what I want you to hear that Whitney is saying is that Learning in the context of the church is life on life. It involves feedback of listening to one another, correcting one another, encouraging one another, even at times rebuking one another and building one another up and so many other one another's from the scripture. When you simply learn in isolation by yourself, there is no feedback loop. It's kind of an echo chamber. It's like if I were to teach miles to drive, which that's coming soon for us, that I'm going to be teaching him how to do it. If I just gave him the book from the Georgia Department of Motor Vehicles and said, read this book, and then I said, you know what, I'm going to go a little bit more, I'm going to get you an app for that, and I'm going to put you on some YouTube videos that show good ways to drive and bad ways to drive, and I just want you to spend several weeks reading that content and mastering it watching the videos, interacting with the app, and answering questions, and then you'll know how to drive. And then, lo and behold, maybe 
I'm slow. Maybe I say six months of that kind of learning will be enough, and then I say, here are the keys. It's time to drive. I want you to take yourself to school this morning all by yourself. Well, I hear laughter because you know that would be ridiculous. Like, I would be sending him on a death mission. That would not be a good parenting at all. And the point is, he needs to learn to drive in an environment where I can give him feedback, where we can start, where there's no traffic, and he learns to start the vehicle, he learns how the vehicle works, how to put it in gear, how to hold the wheel, how to maneuver around a parking lot, and then after we get comfortable with that, maybe it'll be time to pull into a street, but again, hopefully with not much traffic. And we will incrementally teach him, and he'll make mistakes along the way, and I'll correct him, and I'll make sure that he's doing things well. But as we do that, he needs the feedback of another. And I'm sure I won't be the only one teaching him. I'm sure Crystal and grandparents and others may get involved in the process. And even a driving school will get involved in the process. But in all of these ways, the point is you cannot learn in isolation. And yet, how sad it is that I hear Christians say, I don't need church, I've got the internet. I watch my favorite teacher on YouTube. In fact, he's live streaming right now, so I'll watch him this afternoon when I get home. And we pick people because we think they're persuasive, they're powerful, they're effective, they're great communicators. And yet, there are stories that come out all the time that some of the best teachers out there live completely inconsistent with what they teach. You can only know that if you're in community with them. So the local church may not always have the best and the most polished preachers, and I certainly don't claim to be one of those, but the local church should have Bible teachers that can live what they teach, that you can watch and feed back into their lives, and that I, like Apollos, should be teachable to you when you come to me. Several years ago, when I was discipling some young men, notice a theme about young men. I don't know what that is, but I do, actually. I do it intentionally. But I was discipling these guys, and I said, guys, what do you want to do for our next study? You want to do a book of the Bible? Do you want to do a Christian book? What are you interested in? And one of them said to me, he said, you know what? I've studied a lot of books of the Bible, but no one's ever taught me how to interpret the Bible, how to handle the Bible in a way that I could go to any passage in Scripture and sort of know where I'm at and what's going on there. So could we do a class in Bible interpretation? And I said, that would be a great idea, and we did. Through my brother's question, it taught me a lesson. I was assuming that if we just did a Bible study through one of the books of the Bible, that that would be good and that everybody would get it. But he was pointing out to me that he didn't always get it and that he wanted more tools to be able to handle the scriptures completely. The point is, I learned from him in that moment, and I've added that to the way I train people that I disciple. So I don't have all the answers, you don't have all the answers, Christ holds the answers, and we point one another to Christ. So humble Bible teachers continue to learn from the church, and the last point that I have for you this morning is that the church sends qualified Bible teachers to others. The church sends qualified Bible teachers to others. After Priscilla and Aquila had taught Apollos, it says in verse number 27 that he wanted to go to Achaia, which is Corinth. And the brothers and sisters in Ephesus encouraged him, even writing a letter of commendation to send him on his way. 
Now with a fuller understanding of the doctrines of Christ, Apollos wanted to teach more people because the people in Ephesus had heard what Apollos had to teach. They heard what Aquila and Priscilla were teaching. So now Apollos wanted to tell others this good news of Jesus Christ. And what stands out to me here is that Apollos now became a commissioned teacher. He wasn't simply an itinerant teacher, but he was now commissioned by the believers at Ephesus to share the gospel in Corinth and wherever else God would direct him. And as he went, we see that the church trains, approves, and sends qualified teachers to spread the gospel. They didn't simply leave Apollos to his own devices, but instead he wanted the connection with the church to show the continuity of the faith. And as he went, he became an even more effective disciple maker, verse 27 says. When he arrived in Corinth, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. You see, Apollos affirmed the gospel through his teaching, and now with a more complete understanding, he taught the grace of the gospel through Jesus. Apollos' new, more complete message in Corinth matched Paul's original message in Ephesus, where he said in Ephesians 2, for by grace are you saved, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Not that Apollos was teaching work salvation, but Apollos was now emphatically teaching that the gospel of Christ was a gospel of faith by grace. As Apollos did this, it says at the end of our section in verse number 28 that he powerfully refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. He was not only an effective disciple maker, but he was a gifted evangelist who, like Paul, traveled from synagogue to synagogue, declaring Christ and watching God grant repentance and faith to several who would believe. As God gifted Apollos for theological debates in the synagogues, God also made him persuasive to some of the Jews. It was on the basis of his thorough knowledge of the scriptures that he was able to teach that Jesus was the Messiah. According to Luke's report here, Apollos proved to be such an effective evangelist that he was able to persuade many. Some would even go on to say that Apollos could be the author of Hebrews that it's possible that the culmination of his traveling ministry of teaching the scriptures and pointing to Christ became the letter that we call Hebrews. Why do I say that? I say that to say Apollos took what he had learned and the church sent him to teach others. As the church, we have the privilege to not only feed ourselves here internally, but we have the privilege of blessing other churches I think of that as it relates to Luke getting ready to go to Senegal with Jackie and their children. We have in Luke a gifted teacher who could be a senior pastor in a church like ours. And God has called him to be a theological trainer in Senegal where he will train other pastors to do the work of the ministry and to be theologically precise and clear in their teaching of the gospel and the doctrines of grace. In all of these ways, God has used our church to raise up this brother, to train him, to affirm him, and now to send him. Perhaps he would do the same with others of us as well. 
If you're here as a child or a teenager, I want to encourage you to be learning the scripture, not simply because your mom and dad bring you here, but learn it and investigate it for yourself. And then may God raise some of our children and some of our teenagers up to be evangelists like Apollos and missionaries like the Folsoms and other families. In all of these ways, we need to be the kinds of Christians that are eagerly learning with the church so that we can tell others the, the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not enough to simply be educated and have large heads, but we also need to be the kind of Christians that have large hearts, that take what we've learned and share it with others, living godly lives that lead to godliness in others. I wanna challenge you to be involved in the teaching ministry of our church. Not that I'm inviting you to come preach next Sunday, although I've met some people over the years that have told me, you know what, God has called me to preach. When can you get me on the schedule on Sunday? And one guy in particular, I said, well, are you teaching the children's ministry? Nope. Are you teaching in our youth group? Nope. Have you gone to the nursing home and taught there? Nope. And I said, well, I don't get the idea that you're a teacher. So why should we put you up on Sunday? Well, because God's called me to do that. I said, well, I think God's called you to teach in other arenas first. And the point of sharing that story is to say there are lots of arenas to teach in our church, some with positions and responsibilities, but all with relationships. So even if you're not committed to volunteering in our children's ministry, I'm not trying to guilt anyone into that today, you are called to come alongside another brother and another sister and show them the ways of Christ to the best of your knowledge and to invite them to follow Jesus with you and learn together with them. And as we do that as a covenant community, the local church, God will bless his gospel among us and he will make our lives godly and direct us to tell others about Jesus. So be engaged in the process. Be a disciple and be a disciple maker. Be someone whose life is worth emulating, as Hadidian said, and engages in a process to lead others to Christ from generation to generation. And as we do that, God will raise us up to be the kind of church that brings him glory both here and far beyond. And that's so much bigger than you and me. The message that God has called us to is not a message of self-fulfillment or personal happiness, but a message of God's glory on earth. And we cannot do that alone. We must do that together. So be the kind of believer that is an intentional and eager learner in the context of our church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you now, we acknowledge that this is a sobering responsibility, that you've called us not simply to be bench warmers who arrive on Sunday for the show, but God, you've called us to be active participants in your work. So Father, help us to be eager students of your word. Help us even today if we've been convicted that we don't know as much as we should, Perhaps we've attended church for many years and we still feel inadequate. God, I pray that we would turn that conviction to commitment and that we would discipline ourselves to godliness and sound doctrine. And God, as you would help us to do that, I pray that we would be the kind of church that teaches others. So help us within our church to be a teaching church that we're constantly pointing one another to the scriptures and helping one another grow in our understanding of grace and the gospel and the application of your truth. And I pray that that would overflow into the teaching of others, even as we're sending out our brother Luke and his family and as we have sent others before him when we pray that we will send others after them. 
we ask that you would use our church to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ to all who would receive it. And God, we pray that you would be glorified through our witness and our disciple-making as we make much of Jesus. So Father, bless this work because we cannot do it on our own. We will do it by your power and your spirit. And it's in the name of Christ I pray, amen.